A time she was bought to feed her fair flocks by her green rustling corn, but she fled the woods where her favourite resort, a darling amusement, the hounds and the Long quiet she reigned till featherward steers a flight of bold eagles from Madria strand repeated successive for many long years they darkened air and they plundered the land the princes were mud and horror their cry they ravaged and drew the world beside she took to her hills and her arrows let fly the daring invaders they fled or they died the camelon savage disturbed her repose with tumult and disquiet rebellion and strife provoked beyond bearing at last she arose and robbed him at once of his hopes and his life the Anglian lion the terror of France of rolling in sanguine the tweed silver flood but by the bright Caledonian lands He learned to feed in his own native world The fell happy raven took wing from the north the scourge of sea and the dread of the shore The wild Scandinavian order should forth To wanton and carnage and wallow in God O'er countries and kingdoms the fury prevailed No arts could appease him, no arms could repel But brave Caledonia in vain they assailed As lives welcome witness and long could tell 
Thus bold and dependent, unconquered and free, our bright course of glory forever shall run. For brave Caledonia, mortal must be, I'll prove it from you, clear as clear as the sun. Rectangle, triangle, the figure we'll choose. Be a brightest chance, and all time is the base. But brave Caledonia's the hypotenuse. The Nebo, she'll match them and match them always. Hello! Welcome to the Christagenia European Fellowship Forum. Today is Thursday, February 16th, 2012. I have a few things to talk about today, little things, no big things. I, I had thought about um, going over my, my new Saxon, Saxon Messenger editorial, Worshipping the Beast, but, but it's a... Um, uh, I don't know. It, it's it's. I'm constantly looking for new ways to make the same points concerning race and and society today. And, and this is just another one. And and I'm not going to go there today. It's it's um political and and negative as usual. What can I say? That that's the the situation that we face. We we um. We were told when we see this time coming to hold our heads high because our redemption is nigh. And praise Yahweh, it certainly is. It's, it's just on his time clock and not on ours. I'm going to reread the, um, the parable of the trees of the forest because it is a highly misunderstood parable. And, and I covered this the other night in my Hosea presentation, but I thought that would give people the opportunity here to talk about it. And, and we have a couple of other things to talk about. Taya had raised a couple of questions in an email, and um, I'll, I'll give her the opportunity to speak first, and, and we'll, maybe she could raise the, um, the question concerning Jephthah and his daughter again. And, and that might be interesting and spark some constant, some conversation, I hope. The parable of the trees of the forest in, in Judges chapter 9, there's probably a different answer concerning this parable for every commentary you look in. I, I don't know. I, I, I've looked in a few that I thought were off base, way off base, and I didn't bother with anymore. This is um, Judges 9, 8 through 15. The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. And they said unto the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said unto them, should I leave my fatness whereby, well, I'm sorry, wherewith by me they honor God and man and go to be promoted over the trees. And the tree said to the fig tree, come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit to go be promoted over the other trees? 
Then said the trees under the vine, the grapevine, Come thou and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheers God and man, and go to be promoted over the other trees? Then all the trees said unto the bramble, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth you anoint me king over you, because of course the bramble didn't believe it, then come and put your trust in my shadow, and if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon, which are of course the, the most noble of all the trees and the, and the biggest. The allegory of the parable of the trees in the forest it is something we should always bear in mind. It, it's, it's to show that all of the good and productive men of the land have no desire to rule over their fellows. The lesson here is that when men seek earthly kings to rule over them, they shall naturally end up with the lowest and most useless sorts as their rulers. Once they do, they must subject themselves to the scum of the earth or be devoured by them, and the lowest of men gain the advantage over the most noble. When this country was founded, When the United States is founded, I'm sorry, in, in the um, for, for our European friends here, which, which is actually most of the room today. But when the United States was founded, the founding fathers understood the problems with the noble classes in Europe. And, and that they, they set up a government that they envisioned would be, um, <clears throat> would be staffed by men who left their farms at their own expense, by men who left their professions home at their own expense to go to Washington for two years or for six years and serve the people at their own expense as a public service for very little recompense. It wasn't long before the Brambles took over. The, the the olive tree knew that his job was to produce olives for the benefit of men. So he didn't want to rule over the other trees. And the fig tree knew that his job was to produce figs that men needed for food. So he didn't want to rule over the other trees. They understood that their roles were naturally to fulfill those things that they were fit to do. And to be productive trees. The same thing with the vine. It didn't want to leave its, its production of grapes for wine to rule over the other trees. Well, it's the same thing with the doctor and the carpenter and, and the home builder and, and the, the plumber and, and all the men who are actually enjoy the function that they have in society that they chose that, that's naturally suits their abilities and, and their interests and their likes. And, and that's how we should choose a career anyway, right? And the bramble is good for nothing. 
And because the bramble is good for nothing, it naturally becomes a, a parasite. It, it's good for nothing. It's never produced anything. And it naturally fills that void that none of the other trees wanted to fill. And when you look at our professional political class, and, and even the professional, the, the um, I shouldn't call them professional, the nobility of Europe for, for a great amount of time. I mean, at one time, nobles were engaged in useful endeavors. It doesn't really seem to be like that any, anymore from what we see of the public. But, but um, and, and there have been many nobles who, who just went about social, with, with their social life and their keys and spending their, their subjects' money, right? Well, well the Bramble, if you look at our political class today in, in these modern democracies, the Brambles have risen to, risen to power everywhere. Well, whether it be Europe, whether it be Germany or London or Ireland or, or the United States, the entire political class is full of brambles. It's full of people who have never, ever been able to produce anything in society on their own. These people have never been productive people who have actually manufactured anything or, or created anything or, or created um opportunity for others to create anything they're just political parasites today we have the bramble in 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 control of our lives everywhere and that is what we were told would happen all the way back in judges chapter 8 or i'm sorry judges chapter 9 look at obama look at joe biden but look at um the Bush family, that these men have, have never, um, have never themselves actually worked for a living at a craft and created something with their hands. They've spent their entire lives pursuing the rule over other men. They are brambles. And when men chose an earthly king, the natural result of that is that the brambles would rule over us. And once men made that decision, men were forced to subject themselves to the brambles. Otherwise, the brambles, the lowest scum of the earth, the lowest trees of the forest, could indeed devour the cedars of Lebanon. In other words, if you don't, once our forefathers chose to subject themselves to men rather than God, they chose that path for all of us. And no matter how noble we as individuals are, or big or strong or, or, or um, intelligent or productive, we're subject to the brambles or we're subject to be devoured. That's the lesson of the parable of the trees of the forest. I know that Taya wanted to talk about um, Jephthah, which might be interesting, and, and maybe uh, I'll read that. I'm, I'm going to 
unmute a couple of the Europeans and and uh, or the Europeans that are here. And if any of the Americans like to speak, they'll, they'll just have to let me know, right? That's the usual routine here. Hello, how are we doing today? Hello, Taya, Danny. Hi, there. Dorcas, where are you, Dorcas? You're unmuted. Hello. Oh, yes. Yes, me. How are we doing? Yes, excellent. Um, no wonder I feel um, we're just treading along because of all the brambles. That's what's what it is, isn't it? We're all being encased. By yes, we are. Brambles. That's who we have for rulers. We no, were born. That, that's the, the natural result uh, of the order that we chose when yes. we um, desired to follow man rather than God. Yeah. Bricks in our side. They're, uh, I noticed they're, they're starting to come out of the closet now. Um, I saw several articles about the different Rothschilds children uh, making comments and public appearances and stuff. That's very unusual. Yeah, right, well, it is. But they feel confident enough to do that now. I mean, yes, they never... Uh, They've always been in the background. Now they feel confident enough that they could step out into public and and, and let us know they're running things. Right. This is good. This is, um, I I don't know if if you've heard of Ronan O'Gara, the the rugby player, and and his rugby team greeted the queen, and, and he just stood there with his hands in his pockets and talked to her real casually like a commoner. I don't know all the details of it. I just saw it. Actually, ProThink sent me the link before the program, and and it made me laugh because um, he's showing total disrespect for her and her office and and her, um, you know, all the normal protocols, and I think it's great. I really do. I think the Queen last week has made a statement that really gets to me. She said, I haven't heard the whole uh, speech she gave, the little bit that I did hear that was reported. She's the queen of all faiths, and people don't understand the Church of England. And uh, it's all faith she's interested in. Well, I I haven't got read anything. I, have, I haven't been out to get a paper. But there you are. She's spelling it out. She means nothing. I mean, did she stand for? Say that, or was that what? Did she she doesn't say normally that say that. Charles does, but she never. Well, says I that. know he does. I know he does because I've heard about that. But this was out of the Queen's lips, uh, and I've never heard her say these things before. So right. I would be interested in the whole speech. I'll have to try and get my hands on it. Some. Yeah, you'll have to check it out. Well, well, that shows, again, how confident they are getting in, in this multiculturalism and diversity in this Jew world order that they could actually um, disparage Christianity and, and, and give it a subservient or, or a lesser role publicly and, and yes. not have any repercussions from that. Yes. Yes. Well, I taped, I taped the Queen making a Christmas uh, speech years back where she confessing that she was a Christian and Christianity was the, her religion 
follow in Jesus Christ. Yes, I remember. The, the best religion. Well, well, this is on the BBC. To, uh, it's on the BBC News, Danny, and, and it's um, February 15th. It's just yesterday. Yes. And, and oh, she says, the Queen has spoken of her belief that the Church of England has a duty pro- to, to protect the free practice of all faiths in the UK. Now, now that is, even though that's, um, it, it's cleverly worded. Right. It, it's still um, a, a 300, it, it's a 180 degree turnaround from the attitude of 100 years ago. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm glad it's, you Go ahead, I'm sorry. Mm. Orcus, go ahead, I'm sorry. I mean, I just found it because that to me was quite an important statement that she was coming out with. That the Church of England got no real power, well, that we know that, but she's... Well, well, uh, it reflects the progressive... Um, the, the progressive diminishing of Christianity by the by, by the um, the powers behind the scenes. Yes. Yeah. And the point that it's gotten to. How they're elevating uh, Muslims. But, but all, yeah. But also this week, to counteract all that, Eric Pickles, who's a a minister, government minister, has overthrown a high courtment, which said that, um, which I think it was a secularist, said that prayers would not be said before council meetings. And uh, this government minister is actually in the process of quashing this high court judgment to say that uh, councils may have prayers, Christian prayers, uh, before council meetings, which is a real slap in the face for the secularists who wanted to ban them all. So, you know, there, there's another side to this as well. well. Well, right, but that seems to me that, you know, it's just the... Um the different attitudes within the government that there are still at least a couple of Christians left, right? Mm, that's right. Who, who don't mind mm. speaking out. Yeah. Well, that's right. That's right. But, I mean, that that's a major step. Um, that, that I mean, prior to this, all the councils f- from the ruling would not have been able to say prayers. That's throughout the country, and now they can. I mean, they, they would. I hope they would have done it anyway, but um, at least you've got somebody speaking out. Well, why didn't they do it for schools then, if they do it for councils? I don't see the point of doing it for schools. Because you've got atheist teachers, haven't you, going through some rigmarole of a prayer routine. Wow. That's really uh, quite amazing hearing her say that. I mean, like you say, wording is... uh, Is she talking about that? Talking about the denominations in Christianity. Talking about all religions. Yes, very interesting statement. Mm. Just that, um, like the Constitution, they wrote up the Constitution, they were talking about, they mentioned the religion or anything, they mentioned it was. Christianity and different denominations of Christianity would not dominate America. 
dominate the government. Don't forget, reading quite, you know, there is a Muslim MP as somebody. I mean, they're all coming into prominent positions. Uh, so nothing is sacred anymore. Yeah. And when the Queen steps in and makes a statement, that is worrying. I just wonder sometimes goes on behind the scenes, you know. Yes. Threatened or... Well, you know they're probably threatened. <laughs> well, well, it's all aimed at the... At the, 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 the progressive breakdown of the monolithic view that Christianity, that, that of Europe as a Christian state, right? As a Christian yes. collection of nations. Yes. Yes, it is. All part of that. And the more quickly they can erode that, and, and they're pretty far along the way now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Scandinavia is real bad, and, and um, Germany is very bad. And everybody's turned off from Christianity because they're turned off from churchianity. And I don't blame them. I really can't blame them. No. The churches have only made themselves whores for the Jews anyway. So I can't blame people for being turned off of that. Well, where's the Church of England then? What is that standing up for? What is it's that? standing for nothing. I, I mean, it, what what is it standing for? Multiculturalism? It's and, and, um, It's got an arch to it at its head. <clears throat> Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is an archdruid. Isn't hasn't he put his his stamp of approval on homosexuality? I'm I'm not sure about that. I I, I remember I I hearing some negative things about Rowan Williams. I can't offhand remember what they are. Yeah, he, he's very weak, but very liberal. Very liberal. Um, and and of course we've got the other archbishop. We, we have these two archbishops. The Archbishop of York. Well, of course he's um, he's black, so you know he can say anything. Wow. Well, well, that's a horrible thing right there. How did mm, the Archbishop of really York get to be a Negro? Mm. I didn't know that, but I've never seen him in the news, so maybe maybe that's why. Yes. Hello. Oh, I was just going to add something. Um, recently watched a video about the rabbi who says that Europe rabbi who said that Europeans like decided themselves to Christianize to Christianize to be to give up the Christian tradition because um, they were tired of all the wars Christianity had caused and all the suffering. And then she goes on to say that the Holocaust was um, a consequence of the Christian hatred toward Jews. Oh, and rubbish. that is the reason they decided <sighs> to leave Christianity. So he's, he's practically implying that because Christianity is dying in Europe, so Europe is dying and all that without uh, Jewish influence. 
Yeah, it's hilarious. Well, well, that is hilarious because all of our wars have been because of Jewish influence. Right. Yeah. And it's I, I haven't looked at it myself, but some of the people on North Palin, some of the people that frequent this server in the evenings have um, found evidence that certain Jews are starting to admit that the Jesuits were Jews in, in certain Jewish news sources and and academic sources. So so that'll be interesting to see. I'm going to try to look into that further next week. Uh, the um, the idea that, that Christianity is responsible for all of these wars when we clearly see the interest of the Jewish bankers and, and, and Jewish communists and Marxists behind all of these wars and revolutions of Europe the last 200 years, mm-hmm. that, that's incredible. And even the last 400 years, because mm-hmm. the Thirty Years' War was basically waged by the, at, at the instigation of the Jesuits and the Catholic Church. It was a war against the German people, and there's been yes. war against the German people ever since. Well, I really noticed there is a lot of like um, instigation for people to 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 hate Christianity because uh, they um, they consider it to 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 have brought a lot of lots of wars and hardship but but mainly it was due to the jews and of course no one tells that well i i tell you what was really big that i saw in the news uh for the truth was this uh judge napolano uh what's his name Nap- napolano napolitano napolitano <laughs> He uh, he has that we have that show on Freedom Watch on Fox News Business. He had a gentleman on there that was the head of the, um, the Bin Laden. Well, you have it on your on your Christogenia site. It's fantastic information. This guy comes out and and right on Fox News and says that the Israelis were behind 9/11. Israelis were uh, attacked the USS. Um, Liberty. I mean, things like that. And I've been around this movement for a long time. I have never seen this type of information coming out so public. And this uh, man on there came out and said that they were behind. The Israelis were behind 9-11. They're behind this war. The drum to try to get the Americans to fight this war against Iran. I thought that was, didn't, didn't you, Bill? I thought that was just fantastic. Well, well, that's why I put it on my front page. It's the most revealing thing I've ever seen on, on mainstream news media, you, you know, to come out yes, purposely and, and directly like that. It, it's, um, yep. it, it may not seem like much, you know, compared to the level of awareness of a lot of people here, but it is very important that that came out right. on mainstream news media. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He lost his job, so no, he hit, hit nail on the head. Well, well, you know, Fox News is seen as conser- conservative and and all that, but the the even if Rupert Murdoch is not a Jew, and and it can go either way. I, I don't. The jury's still out as far as I'm concerned with him. It doesn't matter. But all of his executive officers are Jews in charge of their yeah. news corps, news and entertainment divisions, and, and, and Jews permeate the entire staff there to the same extent that they permeate the rest of the media. 
in, in all the editorial and decision making capacities? Mm. So, so News Corps is no better than any other media conglomerate at, as far as Jewish control. If anybody here has seen that, you have to check it out. Crystal Guinea site. I think it's maybe still be on YouTube, but um, yeah. Well, I downloaded just because off. YouTube <laughs> tend to disappear. That, that's the only reason why I download. YouTube's tend to just disappear, right? Yeah. Have somebody come right out and and this guy at the high level too. This man was CIA head of uh, Bin Laden uh, unit or whatever it was. Bin Laden finding Bin Laden or something. Like that. And he, uh, I mean, this guy was far up emitting this kind of stuff. I mean, there's been people in the past, but at this level on TV like this, so much easier to. This to people <laughs> like Barbara Spector and them coming out, admitting uh, that the Jews are behind the spreading of multiculturalism. I've never seen anything like that. Admitting this kind of stuff, they they do believe they're at a point now where they uh, they're very powerful and they can say anything they want, and this is what always destroys the Jew. Well, what happens? Well, I don't know. I'd destroy them. Because people oh, yes. don't believe that. They don't believe it. I've had experience of it this week. People do only believe what they want to believe. They don't believe it. They don't well, believe it. True. Things are, are going to start getting worse. And uh, the people aren't going to be blaming it on a Republican or Democrat or or Cameron or Obama. They're going to start blaming it on the well. Those people will be blamed, but they're going to start. They're going to start blaming it on the Jews. Jews, these rich Jews are doing this. This is what happened to them. When you study history, you find out that the Jews always do this. They get too arrogant, too powerful. They come out of the closet, and they get marked. People don't know the history today. You forget that they're all been dumbed down. People don't discuss these things logically. Well, you know, that's my experience. Right. Well, they hear it here, they hear it there, and... uh, it picks up. Mm. Picks up. Oh. You know, they, somebody maybe like in my family or here, you know, they may disagree with you. Then they hear somebody else say it. Well, geez, that's Danny's been harping on all these years. Wonder mm. if that could be right. Friends in my mm. work were like that also. Because you know, yeah. it's the truth. Like uh, the, the Christian identity message and and who we are, it it fits. It makes sense. That's what people tell me. It, is, it does make sense. Of course it does, because you're part of it. That's why right. we're interested in it, because we're part of this. That's right. 
Absolutely. You know, our spirits bear witness of his spirit. We are the children of God. If some of those people eat pork. <laughs> Another thing about Israeli, I noticed that they try to foment a, a war with Iran, like really obviously they're um, orchestrate things um, like um, the the uh, Israeli embassy in Iran was set on fire or attacked, something like this. I'm not quite sure, but it's um, I don't know what will happen, but um, I, I'm sure they won't give up until they they have America or Europe involved in 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 a war with Iran. Right. But see, the more this word gets out, Jew, the more this word gets out, popping up like they are, coming out in a minute. George Saros saying that, uh, and uh, saying that America is going to be a second-class country by 2016. This, this uh, connects with people, believe it or not. Not everybody. No, it's slow. And coming, but when it comes, it'll be just like a tsunami. This is what's going to happen. This is what is happening. But it's just a matter of things getting more worse. Things are going to get worse. Uh, we're going to be knocked out of our routines. You know, there, I think there'll, there'll be shortages in a lot of places. Maybe not all places, but that's just my opinion. And this is what brings people into knowing the truth and what's going on. What is going on here? People start asking, who's doing this? Well, they, they already openly admitted it. It's just a matter of time until people I um, so. wake up from their like um, sleep. It's a, it's a sleep, right? Because when, when, when hardship arrives and when things just don't fit, I think most people will need to wake up. See, the, the thing about it is that they've done it. They've done it in different individual countries. You know, they've they've done it in the Soviet Union or Russia. They've done it in Germany, and um, destroying these countries. And it's always somebody else they're 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 blaming it on. You know, it's, oh, it was Hitler and what Hitler did. Look at how the poor. But you know, there's a lot of people now that. That, geez, what, who else in that war? You know, why was it just, why is it always Hitler and they don't ever say nothing about the Jews and what the Jews did? Because I read on this, uh, you know, this one website, so Guinea, the, the guy said that the Jews were behind the the murders in the in the Soviet Union. And, stop, you know, that's how it happens. People start picking this up, picking that up, and um, and the that's how the truth comes out. You never know when you're talking to somebody, see that you're planning this message. You never know who you're talking to. You might talk to that one person that going to geez, he's gonna, it's going to catch on like a fire. <laughs> well, that's a you never know how Yahweh is going to with you. And this internet is just absolutely fantastic for spreading 
They also have you taught to keep the Almighty's commandments and laws. Mm. It can't be all one-sided. They have to be taught what's right and what's wrong. We're blind to our identity. Oh, and, and you're talking about centuries of it. I believe us in this group of ours, we're especially picked, especially picked out for. That's why we're here. That's what I believe. Yes, absolutely. You're just so easy to just go ahead and along with it, and you know, don't worry about it. And and but we can't do this. I don't know about well. I know people feel the same way I do. Just can't go on and forget about it. It's always is on your mind all the time. <clears throat> You'll know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. All love freedom. <laughs> the other thing that they're trying to do to us is um, separate. Scotland wants to come away from England. So, um. Well, divide and conquer. Yes, that's it. They're, that uh, might help Scotland in the long run, but, but they're just as liberal as the English are. Yes. They're, they're Yeah. What they don't realise, Scotland, is that they will simply be a single region of the European Union. Right. Yes. A single region. They will not have nation status. They, they're no. simply a region, and they haven't cottoned on to that. No. They've even been designated a number for their region. <clears throat> I mean, at least yeah. the UK is, I think it's 10 regions, uh, you know, in the divide and conquer regime of things. Um, Scotland will only be one region. Yes, and, and then Cornwall will want to secede, and Wales. So we're becoming smaller and smaller. It is divide and conquer. Yeah, but people oh, wake if, up. If that all happens, that. it might be some. It might be good because then maybe South Carolina will start it up again over here. <laughs> What's that? Um, <laughs> I didn't understand that. <laughs> I said if that happens over there, that might be good because maybe South Carolina will start it up again over here. Oh, I see. Yeah. South Carolina was the first American state to succeed from, from the Union in 1861, right? Oh, yeah. right. We didn't right. know that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, they're talking about uh, wanting a united Ireland. I wouldn't want a united Ireland. All that, all that scum down there. I'm sure that's really flooding up here. They're gross. Why is um? I guess who are in power? I guess Southern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, is um more overrun with aliens than Northern Ireland is. Yes. Oh, definitely. Um. I mean, there's. I think what it. I'll tell you what. I think the weather here what chases them a lot out. A lot of them out. I mean, I have, I didn't, maybe they're all hiding or whatever, but I haven't seen as many as I have, like, in the warmer months. So, 
but uh, I've been seeing a lot of nice, big, tall, Aryan Polish people here. I know oh. a lot of the people here don't like them, but but at least they're they're white. They're you know they're. I'm sure they're Christian. It's not yes, a good um, idea. They've had a run in England. Yeah. And then we pay all their child benefits while they're here. So we they say they've got ten kids over in Poland. We I have no means that. of checking that. You know. Wow. Yeah, I could not this is it. how we're being milked dry, and they're coming yeah. over here just to do that. In fact, any um, cafe or whatever you go into, you've usually got a, a, a Pole or a Romanian, uh, you know, serving behind the counter. Yeah, I wonder if I could pass for a Stanislaw. Well, what I'm saying is, is they're better than having the packies over and the Indians and the blacks and everything. But uh, it does, you know, it's, it's another thing. I agree, you know, you, I have to go by the laws, you know, I just don't come into a country and think, well, I'm here, pay for me, like a lot of them do, and this is the place to come to, mm. want to get well, off, you know, they shouldn't be here, and, we've got unemployed people. Right. And another thing, too, I do have to agree. I mean, you got to know the language and speak and know, know the laws a little bit. A lot of the people coming in, they don't, nothing. They, they know how to say hello. That's about it. And give me. <laughs> yeah, they're very hard workers. Um. Well, it was a lot of the very hard work. Like my dad would say, who did the jobs before they did? <laughs> we did. Mm. You know, they paid, the, if the wages were better, those jobs would be filled the way it is. Yeah, but if, I mean, if they come over here to work and um, our standard of living is so much higher, then the benefits that they are are, what, are being sent home to their families, you know, is is a, quite a lucrative thing for them to be able to cash in on. So it's, just, it's in their interest to come over here and look. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But that's absolutely. your politician, you know. That's the same in, in America, you know. They, they uh, That's your politicians. They're the ones that need to be put out. They're the ones that are causing that, and that's not right. Yeah, but, I mean, how do you get rid of these bramble bushes? <laughs> you literally have to throw them out of office, I think. They're incredibly destructive policies. Judges, yeah. you know, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, I know in America, warned us about and the same thing here, too. The judges are a big problem. Yep. Well, yeah, Taya had a question thing. about the story of Jephthah, right? And I, I oh, think yes. I should read. I, I should probably read Judges chapter eleven, and, and answer Taya's question, right? Right. Okay. What is that? Judges eleven. 
Yeah, Judges 11. I, I want to read the, the – um, I don't need to read the whole thing, but I probably will just so that we have the background on it, right? Is that the King okay. James? Are you using the Septuagint or – No, this will be the King James. The, the verses that we want to discuss are the same in the Septuagint, right? Yeah. This is um, Judges from 11.1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. And he was the son of a harlot. Now, now let me say that that word harlot there is inferred, right? It's Isha, the son of a woman. Sometimes that's used of a harlot. I, I, I don't want to say that Jephthah's mother was definitely a whore. And... and it, it doesn't seem to really fit the context, but that's okay. It, it could be the son of a concubine is the way I would probably translate it, right? And he was the son of a concubine, a woman that wasn't his father's actual wife, right? And Gilead begot Jephthah, and Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. And that's just, that, that word strange is just a, a, a generic Hebrew word that means another woman. So it seems to me that Jephthah wasn't necessarily the son of a harlot, but she was, he, he was probably the son of, of a second, uh, of a paramour or a second wife or a concubine or something along those lines, right? Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob, and there were gathered vain men to Jephthah, and he went out with them. And it came to pass in the process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. It seems to me Jephthah must have had some sort of reputation as a warrior by this time. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me out of my father's house? And why are you come unto me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Yahweh deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Yahweh has witnessed between us if we do not do so according to thy words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them, and Jephthah uttered all his words before Yahweh in Mizpah. Now, now, at this time, there was no temple, right? And, and the children of Israel, as, we're, as we learn in Chronicles and Kings, had set up their own high places. Even if they were worshiping to, you know, and dedicated to Yahweh, they were still their own high places. They weren't the, the ordained tabernacle in the wilderness, the Ark of the Covenant was sometimes in captivity at this time. What will actually date the story of Jephthah in a few minutes yet. 
And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us if we do not do so according to thy words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before Yahweh and Mizpah, which would have been like an oath of allegiance, right? And Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What have you to do with me, that you are come against me to fight in my land? And the children of the Ammonites answered unto the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land, when they came up out of Egypt from Ammon, even unto Jabbok and unto Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands again peaceably. And Jephthah... This Bible works is terrible sometimes. And Jephthah sent messengers again unto the king of the children of Ammon, and said unto him, Thus saith, thus saith Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of, of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt and walked through the wilderness under the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers out to the king of Edom, saying, Let me, I pray, pass through thy land. But the king of Edom would not hearken thereto. This is the, the story of the Exodus repeated over again, right? And, and some of the accounts in the book of Numbers. And in like manner they sent unto the king of Moab, but he would not consent, and Israel abode in Kadesh. Then they went along through the wilderness, and compassed, they went around, the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and came by the east side of the land of Moab, and pitched on the other side of Ammon, but came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. But let me say that the... Um, the northern part of the land of Moab, which is the plains of Moab, that that land originally in ancient times belonged to Moab. And it was taken from them by the Amorites. And that's the point that Jephthah is making here. The northern half of the land of Moab, which is east of the Dead Sea, was taken from them by the Amorites. And the Israelites took that land from the Amorites, not from the Moabites. The land of Moab, even though that northern part was always also called the land of Moab, it never belonged to the Moabites since the Amorites took it off them, which is in the years long before the Exodus, long before the Israelites came in. The land of Moab, as we know it, was really only about half of the ancient land of Moab, and it was below the river Arnon, which is what um, Jephthah is referring to here. For Arnon was the border of Moab. The Moabites had lost all their land north of the Arnon to the Amorites. And Israel sent messengers unto Sihon, the king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray thee, through thy, through thy land into my place. But Sihon trusted not Israel to pass through his coast. But Sihon gathered all his people together and pitched in Jehaz and fought against Israel. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they smote him. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. That's the northern former land of Moab, right? Where the plains of Moab are, where, where Moses first numbered the children of Israel. And they possessed all the coast of the Amorites from Arnon even unto Jabbok, and from the wilderness even unto Jordan. So now Yahweh, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, 
and shouldest thou possess it? Wilt thou put, wilt not thou possess that which Kamash, thy God, meaning the God of the Moabites, giveth thee to possess? So whomsoever Yahweh our God shall drive out from before us, them we will possess. Yahweh told the Israelites that he wouldn't drive the Moabites out of the land of Moab, which was below the Arnon River. So Jephthah's telling them that that's their, their lot and they should accept it. And now art thou any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, did he ever strive against Israel, or did he ever fight against them? He wouldn't contest that land which the Israel, the Israelites had taken from the Amorites, even though it had formerly belonged to the Moabites. The Moabites didn't possess it when Israel came. The Amorites did, and Israel took it off the Amorites. While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns and in Arur, and her towns, and in all the cities that be along by the coasts of Arnon, 300 years. Why, therefore, did ye not recover them within that time? So we see that this story, that this account with Jephthah happened 300 years after the conquest of the land east of the Jordan by the Israelites. And that's about 150 years before the time of Saul. So that dates this event that we see here in, in Judges chapter 11 to about 1200 BC, which is about the same time as the Trojan War. So, so that's interesting. Right? And I'm sorry, I lost my place again. Wherefore, I have not sinned against thee, this is Jephthah, but thou doest me wrong to war against me, Yahweh, the judge, be judge this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. Howbeit the king of the children of Ammon hearkened not, not, now the Ammonites were, were brethren of the Moabites, right? Hearkened not unto the words of Jephthah which he sent him. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto Yahweh. And said, if thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors out of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up. And the King James says, for a burnt offering. And that is the way that apparently the Septuagint translators and Josephus interpreted this word. And I'm going to discuss it later, but it's not the way I interpret the word. I'm going to read the rest of the account first. But let me say that this word that's translated burnt offering is, is Strong's number 5930. And the word is Ola. And, and it's related to the word Allah, 5928 and, and 5927. And even though it's seen as a, a holocaust or a burnt offering, it's really only a feminine active participle 
another form. It's a form of the verb found at 5927. Okay? And it really means a step or stairs or ascending, it being basically a verb. And even though it could reference what we consider a burnt offering, an offering going up, which is why it's called that. The meaning of the word is not limited to that use. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and Yahweh delivered them into his hands. And he smote them from a roar, even till thou come to Minnith, even twenty cities, and under the plain of the vineyards with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto, unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dancers. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass, when he saw her, that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto Yahweh, and I cannot go back. He couldn't take back his oath, right? He made an oath. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened my mouth unto Yahweh, do to me according to that which has proceeded out of my mouth. She knew that he meant that, that he made an oath about her, right? For as much as Yahweh has taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity. I and my fellows. Now, this is really interesting, right? Because this is basically, I, I mean, it didn't last two months. But the, um, the, the Greek pagan feasts of Dionysius were all about women going off into the mountains alone for a week. And, and quite often, Dionysius would appear to them, and they would have sex with Dionysius. But there's um there's some pagan roots which can be seen in 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 what's being done here, right? As far as I'm concerned, that there's um seems to me to be some sort of connection. And the, whatever sex these women in ancient Greece had out there in in um in the mountains during the feast of Bacchanalia, it it really wasn't spoken about when they got home. It never happened. Because it was the um, the will of the gods, and it wasn't anything that the woman herself did. It was an ancient, perverted, pagan sex ritual. Sex ritual, and, and this that this seems to be. I, I can't help but think of that when I read this. I just can't. And she said unto her father, "Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months." that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my friends. And he said, go and see, go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months 
that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew no man. Now, now the, the translators and, and the commentators usually say, oh, Jephthah offered his daughter as a burnt offering. That's not what it says. It says that she knew no man. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly. And I can't help but think of that Feast of Bacchanalia. Went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year. So that custom was established at this time. But was this girl really a burnt offering? You know, Paul of Tarsus in Hebrews chapter 11, he looks at Jephthah in a positive light. And, and he doesn't really get into the story. He, he claims he doesn't have time, right? And, and after talking about the faith of many of the patriarchs and the things that they did, Paul says um, at Hebrews 11.32, he says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak. Now, Gideon, we know, did something um, positive. And Barak, the husband of Deborah, and he did something positive. And of Samson. Now, now Samson was a screw-up, but he mostly did things positive, right? And of Jephthah also of David and Samuel and of the prophets. Putting Jephthah in, in, the, in the ranks of Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and Samuel, it seems to me that Jephthah was seen in a very positive light by Paul and not at all in a, in a negative light. Now, concerning this burnt offering... I don't think that it necessarily means a burnt offering at all. And I understand that that's the way the, um, the Septuagint translators and Josephus may have understood the word. But at this time in our culture, even though Jephthah is a worshiper of Yahweh, the God of Israel, he also recognized the Moabite god of Kamash. And at this time, it was said of these people that men did everything that was right according to their own estimation and not according to the word of God. And at this time in, in, in the culture of the Levant and, and Mesopotamian culture, it was common to offer a daughter up to a temple, to offer a daughter up to a, a commitment to a temple or a god or a goddess or whatever and commit them as virgins or as temple whores, one or the other. And, and the an example of this is the Roman Vestal Virgins. And that that practice did not start in Rome. And that's a very ancient practice. And it seems to me that if you were going to kill your daughter, you wouldn't let her run around the woods for two months, going up and down upon the mountains, bewailing her virginity. Yet you'd be afraid that she'd never come back 
and you wouldn't be able to fulfill your will. He didn't, he wasn't planning on killing his daughter. He sacrificed her, um, to, and, and committed her to a future where she would remain a virgin, which seems to me that he dedicated her, whether it be to Yahweh or to some other god is immaterial. It's clear that they had recognized and even many times worshipped the false gods and the idols of the heathens at this time. I believe that Jephthah committed his daughter to the service of a virgin in, in, in some capacity or another that we don't have enough um, information here to determine exactly what it was. But that's what I believe because he was seen in a positive light by Paul. And because here the girl isn't lamenting her life, she's lamenting her virginity. And we don't define ourselves, well, well, at least we shouldn't define ourselves like people do today by what they do or have done or haven't done in bed. So, so that's my opinion of the story of Jephthah. That, that, um, his daughter was committed to a life of, uh, of service in a temple or, or service to, to some cause that committed her to remain a virgin. That is my opinion of, of Jephthah. And, and, um, it can't be proven, but it surely is circumstantial and not outside of the meanings of the Hebrew words. Feedback? Discussion? <laughs> yes, I was always told that she went into a convent when that was discussed. Well, well, that would be like the, the Vestal Virgin cult, right? Mm. What would be similar to that? Yes. And, and that's what it seems to mean to me, that she wasn't a burnt offering, but her life was being offered for some other purpose than to marry and have children. Yes, it was like a for a lifelong service to God. That's what we were taught. Well, well, right. I'm not sure if the God is Yahweh because that was never one of His commandments. But, but it's no. obvious that there were many pagan gods in 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 their world at this time. Hmm. I don't think we can be sure that the God is Yahweh. The lesson is that men shouldn't make oaths. No. And they sure, surely shouldn't make oaths concerning things that aren't within their power. Mm. Men acting on faith wouldn't make oaths. And, and we do it all the time, and I've done it myself, and, and it's something that we've been brought up with. But whenever you say, um, I swear if this happens, I'm going to do that. Or I swear if mm. you do this, I'm going to do that. Or, or I swear when I see him, I'm going to do that. Those things, our futures are not in our hands. God is sovereign, and we should always think and conform our thinking in that confinement that God is sovereign and we are not, and we can't always fulfill our words, but we should have faith in him that his will would be done. If Jephthah truly had faith in Yahweh that Yahweh's will would be done, he would not have made the oath. 
he made the oath. It was a mistake, and and it cost him his daughter, or, or at least it cost him his prospect of grandchildren, right? Yes. And, and that was his sacrifice, and he he kept the oath, well, which is to his credit. But men yeah. shouldn't make oaths, and and even what James tells us, and, and Christ tells us himself in in the gospel not to make oaths because it's not within our power to ensure they're fulfilled. So we should keep our mouths shut and put our trust in God. Mm. I don't know if Tay is still with us, but it was she who, um, who, who sparked this conversation. Yes. I don't know who that is. The screen is not telling who's on the forum. I'm sorry, I had her muted. I, I don't know. She she's dropping in and out, and I didn't realize it. I've I've been wanting to say something. Um, oh. it makes complete sense what you said. Um, and it, it sheds a completely different light upon it from the the actual words which we used um, in the King James, which talk about a burnt offering. Uh, so, you know, thank you for that. Um, it, it now makes a lot of sense. Well, well I, I just have to say that the, the Septuagint did also interpret that. Of, of course, the Septuagint is 900 years after it happened, right? But, but the, so, so they didn't have that. They don't have the entire cultural context either, right? And, and no. that they, they, and Josephus also, apparently from his Greek, interpreted it the same way as the King James writers interpreted it. I think it's an ancient mistake in the interpretation. I think that he mm. offered his daughter, but not necessarily as a burnt offering, because the word mm. can only, only really means an offering up. Mm. In pretty much the same, well, possibly not the same way, but in a similar way to, to how Samuel was, you know, his mother sort of gave him up into Yahweh's service, didn't he? Didn't right. He? And the same thing with John the Baptist. Yes. Yeah. But but it's um in in Jephthah's world, fathers had total control over their daughters and and their futures, right? It, it was absolutely authoritarian to have, and that's the way the world was. It, it was a paternalistic society, and, and a father could commit his daughter for life. It, well, it mean, was done all the time. Even Lot of his daughters. Um, yes, he did. <laughs> So, yes, rather than, uh, yes, he offered them uh, to the men instead of yes. raping the angel, rape his daughters, yes. Right. Yes. He offered them to the men and ended up having them, having them himself, which I don't think was a good idea either. <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't.
Well, well, that's it with Jetdyne. I know there was more that you wanted to talk about, Tay. You yeah. wanted to talk about the um about the um. I have a, a friend who insists on not wearing uh, garments made of more than one fa- uh, fabric or made of uh, wove, woven in, say, silk and cotton or something like that, um, or even uh, polycotton, um, because, uh, you know, that person says that it's against uh, uh, Levitic- uh, certain laws laid down in Leviticus. And, How does that um, friend think about race mixing? Opposed to it completely. Okay. Oh, no, that's good. That, that's good, right? It, it's good that they extend that thinking to, to what really matters, right? Yeah, because that, that's the first part of uh, Leviticus 19. It says, um, you shall not let your cattle gender with a diverse kind. Right. And then it all mixed seed in the field. And then it goes on about a garment with mingled linen and wool. And I can appreciate those days if you'd have tried to weave linen and wool together when you washed it, they would have both shrunk at different rates. So it would have been a futile task. Um, well, well, right. And, and I think there's more to it than that, right? I, I really think that if you aspire to be a child of God, that you should recognize the sovereignty of his laws and, and, and want to represent yourself in the basic purity that that um that those laws represent, right? Right. But we're not going to go to hell for wearing a garment that's half cotton and half polyester. It's not going to happen. Now, now, when I buy clothing, I, I honestly do try to buy clothing that that's um from one fabric, but that's not always possible. And I own clothing that that is from multiple fabrics, and and I can't. I, I could say I can't help it. But it would be very, very difficult for me to buy clothing, which is not mm. like that. Mm. And, and I, I wouldn't know where to begin. You, you know, it, it's uh, you practically have to um, make your own. So, so do we function in society and, and understand that God is sovereign, but we're in a situation where, where we can't keep every law all the time? And I don't think it's hypocritical to to um deal with with and and work with what we have and and aspire to keep his laws knowing that we we have to fail because that's the situation that we're in today and and Paul said that when he finds myself when when he finds himself sinning he recognizes that the law is good yes yes and and that's the that's i believe the proper christian attitude it, it's mm. um you know, I have T-shirts that are 50-50 and socks that are 50-50 because I can't mm. find 100% cotton socks. And, and only a nut would wear 100% wool socks. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, you know, it's. I, I would prefer to have clothes that that, uh, that, that oblige the law, but, but it's not mm. always possible. No. So, so your friend is right. But I wouldn't spend my life seeking out clothing that's that, that fits within the law because then you're getting into um what what I believe is legalism and Phariseeism, right? And, and we have to understand that the law does not save us. So while we recognize that the law is good, 
we we shouldn't to to go um far and wide spending our lives meeting the precepts of the old Levitical law, that doesn't save us. We already have our salvation in Christ. If you think that you have to do that to attain your salvation, well, well, you're wasting your time and you're basically denying the salvation in Christ. Do you think it's a law that will be put into effect in its proper context um, in the kingdom rule? I mean... Well, well, I personally believe that once we we achieve the kingdom of God, that we are going to get rid of this Judaized thinking that has permeated society, and we're going to be able to return to manufacturers that are good and and that that um, please our God, right? Mm. But we don't have that point right now. We we haven't attained that at this time. We have to deal with the society that's around us, and we have to draw draw the line between uh, um, what we should do to please God and what we should do to um, to please our own consciences. And, and sometimes the the two aren't really always in in um, in, in, no. in you know they no. don't always coincide. I mean, does does God want you? Searching for, for six months for a coat to wear and, well, and spending $500 for a coat well, when you could have just gone down in 10 minutes and bought yeah, a coat off the rack for uh, for 50 bucks. You see what I mean? you wear cotton underwear than polyester underwear. I'm not saying you're all your garments because that's an impossibility in this day and age but you would seek out cotton uh, and wool if possible for your because of health it's a health law I mean this polyester is a modern fiber it's not grown fiber and it's petroleum based isn't it that's right so you wouldn't go and buy that and put your family in that for their underwear reasons. Right. Well, well, I'm sure there are probably benefits to wearing natural and, and lawful clothing, just like there are benefits to eating according to, to the, um, the, the, the food loss. Yes. We, we may not realize what they are right away, but I'm sure that, mm. that there is something to that. Yes. Aside from the the obvious problems with the materials, the diverse materials, and, and um, what's going to happen to them when you try to weave them together. Yes. It is so, likely so, that there'll be something we don't know about. People are not taught these things anymore, are they? That's right. the trouble. Well, well, right. It's good. You know, when I go to buy um, socks or, or undergarments, I, I do look at labels. I don't buy anything made in China. Nothing. Mm. I can't buy everything made here because everything just isn't made here. But I don't buy anything made in China. And um, I, I try to buy things that are 100% cotton or 100% wool. But but that's not it, – it's rarely possible. Yeah, and and I know that my salvation is in Christ and it's not in keeping the law. So I would rather just settle for the for the 
10% polyester socks and, and 90% cotton socks that then to, um, that then to spend the next three years of my life searching for socks yeah. that I could wear according yeah. to the law. My salvation is not in the law, it's in Christ. He yeah, knows I need socks. He's not going to condemn me to hell for, for, um, buying the socks no. that, that I, I can attain at the normal channels. And when I can obtain socks that are pure cotton, I'll buy them. Yeah. <clears throat> now, now, Bill, what about that other thing I mentioned about the beard? Well, well, you know, I think that that's a, that, that is not, my opinion is that that's not an admonition not to cut your beard at all. That that's a that, that's basically a commandment to not participate in the vanity that I've seen men participate in, where, where oh, they right. stand in front of a mirror for hours trimming their damn beards. Oh right, a little Van Dyke thing, which are trimmed to a point or something like that. Yeah. Oh right, okay. I, I think it's a commandment against vanity, not against beard trimming oh right okay oh that's good i, I mean i shave my neck right and and i take 10 minutes once a week and run a electric razor across my neck and, and that's a comfort thing right but right. but um I, I don't trim my beard I, I don't stand i have it trimmed when i go to the barber once every two months but i don't stand i've had friends that stood for two hours a week in front of a mirror trimming their beards <laughs> And, and that's oh, vanity, dear. and yeah. and I think that's what the commandment is about. Right. Okay. Uh, um, said that even Christ had a beard. <laughs> so, well, men were given always... beards because they were, and hair, because they were outside workers. It was a protection right. against the elements. I just, the way I do a lot of that, understand a lot of that is, what did Christ give us as an example? Oh, I, like, as far as having a beard, you know, and beard. Well, well, you know, Paul said it was a disgrace to wear long hair, right, for a man. Right. And a lot of people think, oh, Paul is, um, he's denying God because God tells us not to cut our hair. Right. Well, well you know, they cut their hair in the Old Testament. They cut. They didn't cut it short, but they cut it. Now the, um, the the basic truth is that Christ conformed with the culture, and people don't yes. want to understand that. But there's all sorts of evidence in the gospel that he did a lot of things according to the Greco-Roman culture of the time. Yes, and that's the terms that Paul was speaking on. And when you go back and look at all the statuary and, and all of the, um, the the relics of ancient Greece and Rome, you will find the people just as Paul describes. All the men had short hair, normally to just above the ear. All of the women wore their, not all of them, but a great number of them, wore their hair up in elaborate braids. And Paul told those women that that was vanity to stop doing that and let your hair cover your head. And he told the men on Greco-Roman terms, because they, it, it was the Greco-Roman custom that short hair was, was, you know, how men should wear their hair and they shouldn't wear it long because it was a disgrace to them. And if you've ever been in a fight 
you'll know that long hair is a disgrace real quick. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was yes, a very um, pugilistic culture, right? <laughs> yes, yes. No, I believe that also. I believe that Christ had short Roman type of cut. Want to see the barber every two Right, Christ is always shown as being long-haired in paintings, but that doesn't mean it was so. No. All of the monuments from, from the period show men with short hair. I haven't sure. seen a monument from the period with men with long hair. Haven't seen one. I could be right. wrong, but I haven't seen one. Um, another thing, too, when they were talking about the... Uh, uh, she all that the uh, blanket or this. I don't know. I forget. That, uh, you know the image they had on the face of Christ. Well, I'm sorry, Danny. I'm missing you. I'm sorry. I just all said I go blank. Go talk. There's a shroud. That face there altered that face. When they were trying to make Christ look like a Jew, like a Canaanite. That was they fraud. That, that Turing Stroud was an absolute fraud. Yeah, you know, a lot of people ask me what I feel about the Turing Stroud. And, and I have absolutely no opinion on it. I couldn't give a damn about it one way or the other. If it's uh, if it's not a fraud, it's an idol. Well, he had a face cloth. They, in Bible, it tells you they removed the cloth from his face. It was well, well, you're right. Yeah, you're right, face. Dorcas. Yeah, you're right, Dorcas. But but I, I'm not even going to argue the Turin Shroud because if it's not real, if it's not fake, it's an idol. It doesn't matter. In other words, it doesn't matter one way or another. To real Christians, the point should be moot. Well, we don't I, need relics. I think it's you know, what I'm getting at is evidence. The last forensic test they did on that. If you haven't seen that last, uh, but you're missing my entire point. Yeah, you're missing my entire point. It shouldn't matter to real Christians. Real Christians don't need crutches. Real Christians don't need physical proof. Real Christians don't need relics and and talisman. And and we don't need it. Well, when when you're going to discuss something with it, and they're telling you that Jesus looked like a Jew, and you have evidence, supposedly evidence of Christ's face or whatever, looking like a white man. Well, well, we have all what, sorts of evidence of that in ancient Byzantine art, right? It, it's just ignored by most people. No, I don't believe in like worship. Some, well, I understand what you're saying. Man, people get the, you know, there's a kid comes out of a statue and everybody worships. I'm just saying, as evidence, if say that shroud is real and that was Christ's face, they alternate, they uh, altercate it, make it look like he has it has a a Jewish Canaanite does have a 
has an area and look, look at it. When they show the picture, uh, like coming out of the crowd, they, they, um, how would you say they face gives like more of an oval shape than a, than an area of high cheekbone. Well, well, it's, it's immaterial to me, but because there's plenty of evidence of that in Byzantine art and, and in, in, in late Roman art, right? Well, when I say late Roman art, I mean third and fourth centuries AD. I mean, I look at it like, like the carvings on the, the walls of uh, ancient Egypt, you know, what the people look like and explaining the people. These weren't the same Jews or these weren't people we call Jews today. They didn't look like that. Like they looked like the uh, the white race or the Aryan people. That's what they looked like back then, you know, explaining it to people. Uh, that's all I'm trying to say. I didn't say anything about worshiping the shroud. Well, well, yeah, but to me, to me, the the proofs of of you know the Aryan nature of Christ and the apostles are, are abounding to anyone who wants to open their eyes, and I don't need to the entire deviation of arguing over the Shroud of Turin in order to make my point. That's all. That, that's my that's my perception. Well, it was pretty interesting. The last forensic uh, uh, test they've done on it. That the, the last, there was like five layers of cloth and the, the image is on the top layer. If it was a blasty type of a light made this, or energy that made this image, why didn't it go through all the four layers and just top one? You're, you're cutting out a little. I, I didn't quite hear, hear it, but, but it's immaterial to me because I haven't studied it, right? And I don't intend to. Yeah. I thought it was pretty interesting. You know, because anything that would pertain to being Christian, fake. But the, the media tries to... Well, well, right, but Christians are, are too easily led into putting their faith in these objects, and then once the objects are debunked, the Christian has nothing to stand on. Right. Once the validity of the object is attacked, the Christian is done. He has no answer. Well, I don't know. It's pretty hard to debunk this one. I know they, they tried to debunk it a couple times with this last forensic uh, test and stuff like this, and I noticed it was more white men that were doing it. Well, well right, but even if it's a legitimate gar, if it's a legitimate um, two thousand year old object, that does, still doesn't prove it is what's claimed to be about it. So, so there's no way to prove it. Yeah, you see what I mean? That there's no way yeah. to prove it. Yeah. It it shouldn't matter to us. I I, I don't um, put stock in any of those objects, and that way I don't leave my my um my, my beliefs open to dispute. My beliefs are, are purely. Prof- based on, on the prophecy of the Bible, its truth, and, and its historicity. 
And when you leave it at the very core, that that's the firmest foundation. That's the way I see it. Yeah. But to me, I don't these things that, that if it was involved Christ's life, just to go, it, it proves that uh, he was on earth. Uh, and he did live, and he uh, today he's uh, thinking. But but Danny, there's no proof that that shroud was ever upon Christ. There's no tangible proof. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. I understand that. that uh, I don't know. It's the whole thing about them trying to say that he, that this person, even if it wasn't Christ, this person was a, a Canaanite. And uh, his image, trying to make it look like Canaanite, and you could, was not a, you know. Hmm. You know what I mean? How they changed the, well, well they changed the figure on it. Make it look like it was a Canaanite. You could uh, you could see that it was a, a white man's image there. It wasn't a Canaanite image. What I'm saying. Well, that's my point. There's all kinds of images of the apostles that date from the third, fourth, fifth centuries A.D. that that you could clearly see that they were white men, or, or depicted yeah. as white men. And, and there's all kinds of references they, to Christ. There's references to Christ in Tacitus. There's references to Christ in Josephus. There's references to Christ in Suetonius that, that are all from within, within um, you know, secular historians within 100 years of the crucifixion. Right. That's three witnesses right there. I, I mean, that's, we, we shouldn't need any more than that. That's outside the gospel accounts. We have three witnesses to the historicity of Christ. Yeah. Well, well, another thing too. Well, we don't need any more than that. I mean, the the people that doubt Christ are the people that listen to the Jews and, and never examine these things for themselves. And, and if you want to think, if, if they want to think that, that they they know everything because they hear CNN and USA Today, then they deserve to be treated like dirt. <laughs> yeah. That they deserve to be belittled. Well, it gets me as uh, another thing too is these <laughs> these statues that are crying, <laughs> and uh, they had a what was it a show on there where they're uh, how they um, went back I don't know in ancient Egypt or ancient Greece how they used to make these uh, statues cry and stuff like that. <laughs> it was a big money maker. Well, well, that that's you know the um, if you read Bede, every time a new church opened, the the Pope would send some bones. The the Bishop of Rome would send some bones, some of the bones of the saints to to the new churches. 
Yeah. And I figured it. So some butcher must have had a good business making bones of the saints because um <laughs> that they had a lot more churches than they could have possibly had bones. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Well, I saw when we were in Rome, they had this place we went to, and they had a uh, walk in, and it was all those bones. It was all these, uh, I don't know, it was just all these, uh, you know, skulls. The whole place was skulls. Then another area there was all, you know, like femur bones. <laughs> I guess they didn't have any place to put them. Well, well, they 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 were often put in the catacombs, weren't they? You know, under the city. Yeah, it was catacombs. It's all pretty macabre. Yeah, you know, there are catacombs right under St. Peter's Basilica. It, it's the, the the Catholic Church really is built on the bones of the saints, right? Yeah, okay. I saw a lot of those. Yeah. That was uh, literally and metaphorically. Kind of weird. Yeah. In a concrete or whatever, and your head in concrete, and <laughs> I don't know. This one place, there was like three thousand people buried there. So, that was kind of odd. Well, there's actually a huge necropolis under um, St. Peter's Basilica. That's been discovered by archaeologists, but it's yeah, yeah. The whole relic thing is is um is basically pagan. It, it's not Christian at all. It's paganism. It has no place in real Christianity. And, and I put the Shroud of Turin in that category. Just like the um the True Cross, the Holy Grail, the the um. All of the bone relics, that they all go into the category of paganism. That's what they are. Well. And, and I'm sure in the end it would pan out that most of those bone relics were really from a pig's ass or something. That they weren't human yeah, at all. There was another, I was just thinking, there was another place down there in uh, Glastonbury where the, it was the church of uh, St. John, I think it was, and was supposed to have John the Baptist skull. Yeah, now where would they come up with that? It was really weird. That, that's another tourist attraction. That's what how they treated those relics were, were um, medieval tourist attractions. I mean... Wouldn't you put this? Wouldn't you put him in a grave somewhere or something? You know what I mean? Or have his head, but his skull. You go in and, uh, of course, it was all like in Latin or whatever it was. And, but I, oh, I could figure out it was John the Baptist. But from what they understand, that's John the Baptist's head. Yeah, you know, from what I understand, even the ancient Persian, you know, the ancient Parthian Empire. Before it was, you know, forcibly Islamized, that there were a lot of um, the same type of attractions set up in diverse regions 
which claimed to be the burial places of Moses or Abraham or Isaac right. and and made money getting people to, to get into the door and, and see nothing. And it's the same it's it's all the same Jew game over and over again, right? And, and that's a racket. Yeah, yeah, it is it's, a racket. The whole relic game is a racket. Yeah, there's a pub London that its sign outside is John the Baptist's head on a platter. It's a very old pub in a very old part of London. Is that part of the lunch menu? Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that maybe they used maybe they took the head from down at that church in Glastonbury and used it. <laughs> there you are. Wait a minute now. Which head is the real one? Absolutely. It's yeah, a big picture yeah. with all the blood and everything on a platter. Yeah. I'm sure all the Muslims eat there. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I, I if I saw that in the window of a pub, I wouldn't even go in. Well, it's a great attraction, yeah. I'm sure it is. Mm. And, and I'm sure some Jew owns that pub. They got a pub over here at 1720 or something like that. <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty old. Well, what else do we have today? Anything? Um, well, uh, Muslims are wanting uh, dogs to be banned from areas where they live, where they've infiltrated, because they're unclean. I'm sure the government will capitulate. <laughs> <laughs> that that might be actually one of the things that wakes people up because they're great dog lovers here. Yeah. Well, well, if the British, if, if British men had any, um, and any backbone, let me put it like that, that they would have pickup trucks filled with, with hogs, hogs, and, and swine cadavers, <laughs> and they'd be throwing them in the streets throughout all the Muslim neighborhoods. Yes. Or even from a helicopter. How about that? That would drive all those bastards right out, right? Yeah. That they should be breeding dogs and letting them run loose in Muslim neighborhoods and, and dumping mm. pig cadavers all over the place. Well, they'll be, uh, they'll, they won't be last long, these Muslims and stuff over here, they, with things getting worse and the economy getting. If I had to live in a Muslim neighborhood, I'd have a pack of bacon in my in my back pocket. I swear. Yeah. <laughs> Muslim came near me. I just pulled a pack of bacon out. But like that, they'd flee. It'd be funny as hell. Well, they, uh, you could actually have fun doing that, right? A lot of the Muslim and they believe that the white men are scared of them anyway. They can get away with all Yeah, well, most white men probably are. Most white men probably are. They cower. It's yeah, a damn yeah. shame that they're a bunch of sissies. Uh, I saw a video there where, I think, was it in New York? A man walked in a, or a, a black woman starts smacking on a white man. And, uh, and there was a, 
I believe there was about eight other white men in the building. And now the boyfriend came over. And he was a big, he was a big nigger, and he whacked, ha- hammered on this guy. Not one white guy held up. Right. That, that's one, a damn sad situation, isn't it? That wasn't like in our neighborhood, <laughs> but right. I just, I could not believe it. And it was a woman. Yeah. That, I mean, a woman started smacking on him. You'd think that somebody would you know, try to jump yeah, You try smacking on a Negro with eight other Negroes standing there to see what happens. Yeah. I know what would happen. Well, white men have no and, damn sense at all. And they wouldn't know each other. But they're all a bunch of girls. One could be from New York, be from Los Angeles, or wherever, from Africa. They wouldn't matter. Brothers all stick together with others. They're all girls today. Or I think it's the soybean in the diet. I don't know. Or the fluoride or something. I don't know. Uh, it's it's everything. It's the, it's the... It's the... Decades bill of, of the feminizing the men. That's all, you know, all the way from the beat all the way down. So, been working on, we've been working on our countries for a long time, working on the people. See <clears throat> it way back in the turn of this uh, 20th century. Introducing the, the black leaders and You know, you can see it. You know, they initiated their plan from the protocol. Calls are learning elders of Zion. What do you say there, Ice Davey Crackers? <laughs> Well, I'm going to let it go with that. Two hours is long enough, and and I hope it was productive and useful. Yes, thank you for the explanations. But let me... um... Okay, the the next first of the month is March. The the next Euro Forum should be March 1st, right? That's right. So I will see you on March 1st, two weeks from now. Okay, and thank you very much. Thanks for being here, and praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Take care. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Keep us all down, down, and hold that we will never see the truth of.